what schmaltz is actually you probably you're the kind of guy that would actually know what that was i didn't know until recently schmaltz is basically like um it's goose liver that they or goose fat rather that that was rendered down to cook with so I guess it's vegetarian Yeah, it's a vegetarian <laughs> nightmare. So if you're vegetarian and you speak Yiddish, you should maybe think twice yeah. about one of your choices. Um, but uh, yeah, man, yesterday we were talking about, um, it, you know, it was so cool because basically you called me in here to do to do this thing with the Montreal Jazz Fest, which is, is just awesome. And I was like, oh, no, it's going to be one of these things. Because I, I heard your I'd heard your name through the years. But then, you know, anything that's like with the Jazz Fest, I was like, oh, man, okay, great. Like, my first thing is fear. Like, okay, I'm going to have to learn a lot of stuff that I'm, I'm I, you know, that I'm not comfortable with. And also that women don't like to listen to. So... <laughs> But then I then I showed up and instantly like right off the bat we realized like a million things that we had in common and experiences we've done. Um, for one, we were both street musicians in Europe. Uh, right. Although our time I think overlapped maybe by a year or something. Yeah, that's you right. were doing it in the eighty in the seventies and. When I, I left, doing... you could have the pitch. Yes, the pitch. Oh yes. Yeah. When I tell yeah. people the words like pitch and they don't know what I'm talking about, they're like yeah. huh and bottling. They're like bottling. Huh? And they're old words. I mean, they have their historical meanings too, and uh, they become part of you on the street. Though important words. On the street. Right. I mean, I know bottling. Maybe you can correct me, but I think bottling came from medieval or Renaissance, where That's the guy right. who would collect the money would have his hand over the top of a bottle with a fly on it. Yeah. So if he took the the thumb, his thumb off the top of the bottle, the fly would escape, and they knew he'd stolen the money. Definitely right. wasn't a lot of trust going on, I'm thinking, between the artist and the uh, management at that Wait, point in life. Unlike now. <laughs> yeah. So much change, you know. Yeah. Um, so, but what about pitch? Where did that come from? Well, I don't know. Um, it's, we all know, those of us who played on the street, that uh, that's the place where you go and you play. And, uh, right. And you line up for it. And you sign up for it, and you yeah. get there, and you covet it, and you you know you do everything you can. There's guys in Japan that so uh, are so attached to their pitch. Um, they'll get there in the morning, or there'll be a band. They'll put one guy there in the morning when yep. they, they won't come to play at night, and they'll sit on that pitch till they're good and ready to play all day. Yeah, that's the stage. That's a street yeah. stage. We'll yeah. have to look at where that originally came. You from. know, I know that. I think my feeling about it was that it was always where you pitched your tent okay you know? that's because good. where you that's where you but I you know when you were doing what you were doing the era that you were in was the era which preceded me yes and and all of the lore of the guys that were my age was all about um, the one-man band era yeah. and when I see I started in Paris playing on the streets and then I met up with some pros who knew what they were doing they right. said dude meet us tomorrow we're going to Zurich Switzerland where they yeah. have real money <laughs> and uh, Swiss francs. yeah the Swiss francs the real francs and I remember them say looking bringing out some French francs and he goes these are just fantasy francs. Yeah. this is Disney money come to Switzerland you make some real money and um, you know but when I got there there were some British guys who had been there from the previous mm -hmm. thing, which was the one-man band yeah. thing. Yes. And our thing was not the one. Our, we heard a lot about the one-man band. Our thing was the band thing. And mm -hmm. it was commando. And it was very 
extreme. It was like shock and awe. You'd have yes. four or five people, sometimes more, and you'd go in there hard with... <laughs> It was like the German soccer team, you know what I mean? That's how we did everything. And you basically, you would go in and you would just, you would work a town until it was dry and then you yes. move on to the next town, it you was, know? It was brutal somewhat. But you know, the great thing about being a busker in Europe is that they have a, a culture of that. They have a history of that. Hence, uh, even architecturally, they have a place for you to do that. They always have a street with no cars. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know that is your that's your pitch. Yeah. And uh, Fußgänger zone. Fußgänger zone. <laughs> and uh, that's you know I had tried to come over to North America a few times and and uh, be a street musician and I went around did a lot of places oh, in the dreadful. U.S. and Canada and um, <clears throat> you get sort of put in this box of uh, beggars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But with a guitar, you know. Exactly. And uh, whereas in Europe, you were a bit of a star on the street. You were a celebrity. You yeah. even hadn't earned your stripes, but still you were getting paid like a real musician would. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's probably no better place to practice than in front of people because you quickly sort out what you need to know and, and uh, what you don't yet know and, and how to hold those people. I think that's maybe one of the biggest lessons because you quickly see the relationship between eating and holding a crowd. You know? Oh, big time. If you don't hold them, they won't, they won't stay big, and they won't pay. Absolutely. And we were talking about that yesterday. When we first started playing together to rehearse for this gig, I was instantly like, okay, he's got it. And it, to me, is that thing that you have if you've been a street musician where... You're playing 12 hours a day. Yeah. You're out there 12 hours a day and you're playing with some badass musicians. It's this whole kind of visceral experience and way of learning music that we humans have been learning it that way since we started banging bones and logs together in whichever little African village true. we came out of. That's how, that's how we did it. And you have that feeling. And it's funny, like, you know, Madeline Peru, Peru yeah. she had a, a big success now. My group of people that I played with and her group were on the street at the same time. Oh, yeah. Her group was a little different than mine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we crossed paths on a few occasions. I didn't really know her well, but years later I heard, heard a record. And I was like, oh, man, whoever that's singing, she's got it. You know, yeah. the street thing. Sure. I honed, I honed in on it. And, of course, it was her. And I'll hear other people play. And I'm like, man, they've got that thing. It's the street thing. Yeah. And I feel like when you do that, it's, it is the complete 180 degree opposite of a music school education mm -hmm. where you leave no stone unturned in terms of the purely intellectual theoretical pursuit yes, of music sure. but the cultural the socio-cultural aspect mm -hmm. of it your your little place is this tiny link in this very long chain dating back to however whoever knows that to me has a thing that reaches people yeah. who are not musicians. Regardless of what kind of music you try to play, there's that thing you have. And I tell you, I wouldn't trade it for that experience no. for anything. You know? And that, that sort of that adds to your uniqueness, uh, that organic learning. that in, It uh, turns up the volume on your intuition, too. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm only from that scene, and there's many times where I wished that I knew what the hell another musician was talking about when he's talking about demolished twelves and augmented <laughs> this and you know I uh, sadly I never studied any music other than uh, Indian music which I learned 
first to write in Sanskrit and then in English. But that's heavy. That's, that's one that's of the heaviest stuff. And in a way, it is. kind of uh, it has elements that uh, you can relate to all kinds of music from uh, the Indian music. For instance, there's there's a couple of ragas which are are great uh, ragas because they have the exact same notes as blues. Mm. And rag dani is one, and rag jog is another. And it's uh, it's very heavy because there's two thirds. When you go up, it's major, but when you come down, it's minor. Oh, that's dope. And that yeah. adds a kind of a bluesy feel that uh, you just can't buy. It's it's yeah. really uh, it's really deep. And some of the night ragas, the deep dark ragas, they're totally blues. Mm. And mm. Uh, you you can feel blues uh, right to the heart of that. Um, but yeah, there's maybe there's it's it's great to have that balance between you know the knowledge playing like you you have that balance I've seen you you've got the chops of someone that's studied uh, but you got the groove of someone that's played on oh, the street thank you man thank so you. I think that's that might be a good ever. balance for musicians uh, going either way can lead you with only part of the story I guess yeah I think you're right and and um, I mean I feel like that whatever knowledge I've had I've gained from those people that went to the music schools because yes, I didn't go sure. to the music school but yeah. I did gain it from them, so yeah. you know, and, and I guess ultimately our whole thing as musicians is it's it's a we're passing the ball back well, and forth. Well, some of that you know? street smarts of how to educate yourself, how to sell your act, um, you definitely pick that up on the street. Um, you know, um, I I watch my crowd and I I see how they respond and I fine tune until I get the response I want. Mm, um, mm. It's in a way my philosophy is it's not about me when I'm up there; it's about them. So. Uh, you could almost measure the success by the response you're getting. Yeah, And yeah. if you're not getting a response, you should work on fine-tuning that because it, it's not I for agree. nothing that uh, that you want them to, to, to love what you're doing. I it's, agree. It, I mean, isn't uh, that our job? That's your gig. You know, isn't that our job? Yeah, that's the gig. And, and, you know, ultimately, I mean, I hate to, like, bring the old Marxist dialectics into it, but, <laughs> which I won't do because I don't know it well enough. Um, but, you know, ultimately... I guess really there is a need for all kinds of musical expression, whether yeah. it's a, 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 a jazz band that's changing the meter every single bar, yeah. and there's only 20 guys watching the gig, and most of them are musicians, whether it's that, or whether it is uh, Celine Dion at yeah. the other yeah. extreme end of that. Yeah. You know, but I feel like ultimately it, it it's becomes a real part of that thing where it just becomes, it's all about me developing this very specific un inaccessible thing ultimately you could read that as that's just a real incredible entitled bourgeois expression in mm -hmm. a lot of in a lot of ways yeah. that's one way of looking at it yeah. another way of looking at it is you are eschewing that whole bourgeois thing because you don't want to interface with the audience but the yes. way that i look at it is is you it takes a long time to figure out who you honestly are supposed to be as a musician yeah and when you do start to figure that out, then you can honestly interface with the audience. That's and right. then you're not pandering; you're communicating. Yeah, and it's a cool. big. There's a yeah. big difference. That's a huge difference. You know, I've always had the idea that we we sort of bring every, all our life experiences to bear on our music when we play. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that that's one of the things you hear from people who have played on the street. You you hear those experiences. You hear that uh, that kind of. Uh, um, I don't know how it comes through the music. Maybe it, it becomes part of who you are, and the notes you choose are based yeah. on that. Who you are, I think. 
who you are for me is um, plays a big role in, in what you play and how you play. Then you're going to choose the notes by that, by what you want to say. And mm -hmm. um, so uh, I've always thought that uh, if life informs the music, you should make your life as interesting and uh, as joyful a journey as you can if you want to inspire people with the music. Otherwise, what you play uh, will bring people to the level of where you are, whatever uh, that is. You're absolutely you have right. a responsibility there. You can see how the, uh, certain spiritual paths have informed people's music, like John McLaughlin. You mm -hmm. know, uh, suddenly, he, he had a reason to go through all the, 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 uh, the challenges one goes through in the music business and the struggles mm -hmm. uh, the business, not the music, but the business. So maybe that gives you strength, you know. Mm -hmm. and in his case, it, it would seem to be because uh, it, it made his music that much deeper and greater, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I totally agree with that aspect of it. I mean, it, it definitely is, uh, you know, the whole uh, the life experience thing. You, you have, a, ultimately, you're telling a story, you know, and like yeah. what you talked about where you're trying to bring the realities of your life to bear yeah. on what you're trying to say musically, because really, you what you're trying what you as a musician you're trying to do is you're trying to give a, a non kind of verbal voice to the audience pe members who have also had similar experiences yeah. and they want those experience experiences um, they want they want somebody to to uh, to to be another voice out there that's yes. that's, that's give that's saying hey your experiences is is just as valid as mine is, and, and here we are with this this human connection. Yeah, and you, if you have a, an expression that's common to a lot of people, it, mm. uh, that doesn't hurt because no, um, it doesn't. You reach more people, and uh, yeah, I mean, look at the instrument. I mean, the guitar is like it, you know, both you and I play versions of the yeah. guitar. Yeah, people hear that kind of thing. And the tuning is not as big of a deal. The range, it's just that that is an iconic sound that everybody knows in every culture. Yeah. So it transcends all of these different cultures. Yeah. Um, you know, I was talking with Nels Klein in yeah. one of these interviews um, about, uh, you know, the, the guitar in jazz quotes over the right. jazz part. And, you know, the thing about the guitar to be in the jazz world, especially whatever you would want to say is like the modern jazz world let's say yeah. you know post West Montgomery sure. you know it's very it's like round uh, peg square hole kind of thing it's not it's a redhead it's depth child you know? <laughs> and but but it's great to go through that and to learn that way yeah. way of 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 communicating it's like someone who doesn't come from a French culture learning how to speak French it, yeah. it's an important part of your yeah your your, your perspective yeah. as well mm -hmm. but I think it's important for guitar players to know that it's not that's not where the power of the guitar comes from that's like when you listen to like a Horace Silver record or an Art Blakey record or you listen to that um, Clifford Brown Max Roach group you're like oh man that is modern jazz at its finest like it doesn't get any better than that yeah there's no guitar in that <laughs> you know what I mean and, yeah, and, and it's just one of those things not yeah. to diss the guys who've traveled that route and I know some fantastic guys who are fantastic musicians who yeah. do that and do it very very well I'm just saying that you're it's like being being like a, a guy like Ichiro and being expected to hit a home run every time you get up right 
it's like not it's not you're you're operating out of whereas like what you and I do coming from more of a folk oriented thing at yeah. least I think of myself that way yeah. regardless of whatever jazz knowledge I have accrued yeah. uh, that's where the guitar speaks that's yeah. where it lives you know I, I found my love of the instrument when I discovered the the Mohan Vina mm. yeah talk about that the Mohan Vina and it's a it's really the marriage of the uh, of the the slide guitar and and the sitar uh, it's strung up just like the sitar mm. but it's played in the lap like a slide guitar um, I found that uh, the moment I heard it I, I got to Vishwa's house and I sat in front of him and he just strummed it the moment I heard it I realized uh, in a split second my life had changed mm. because I, I also was seeing that whatever it took, however long it took, whatever it sacrifices needed, I was going to be sitting there where he was sitting, and I was going to be playing that. I knew that in that very second. Wow. And um, and it was a bit of a kind of, oh, shit, because I knew uh, my life outside of that was suddenly ended. I lost all meaning where I lived, who I lived with, what wow. I did, everything. And... Um, it was that heavy, and that that Man. kind of epiphany uh, only came has only come that one time for me in my life. But uh, it was so powerful and uh, so encompassing um, of my whole life that uh, I was I was 150 percent clear that I was on the right path. Yeah, but you know, in listening to you play that instrument, because I've heard him, yeah, and I've heard uh, Bhattacharya, yeah, and. Um, those guys are doing really cool things. Obviously, I mean, they're they're like top Indian music yeah. masters. What are you going to say? Yeah. But what you're doing, the language that you bring to that, it really does bridge those two yeah. sides. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you definitely have an affinity. Yeah. For for that sound and uh, and you know what I mean? Like yeah. when I heard you playing, I was like, okay, this sounds like VM bot, but it's not. Like yeah. there's too much. American yeah. information That's in right. there, you know, North American yeah. information in there. I had know. to leave there at one point because... Um, Where were you, Calcutta? No, I was in uh, Jaipur Okay. for many years, and uh, <clears throat> I knew that um, the path of Indian music is a long one, you know. I was there five years, and I was just making a dent in it, you know. <laughs> and I was thinking, whoa, I don't know if I have... 10, 15 years, I, I gotta, I gotta make some, I've been in India a long time, I, I've been there 12 years, and I was, you know, always broke, I used to go to Japan, play on the street for a while, make some cash, come back, but uh, I knew I had to sort of make this thing work at some point, and um, so after f five years, and I, I had some chops, and I had some stuff to practice, I thought, I'll go and work on it in the West, and um, once you start using it, then it starts to really become part of you. And, mm, uh, mm. So I came over, but uh, you know, I, I loved that instrument so much, and I still do that. I didn't want to take it out to show people at first. I played it at home. I was wow. really selfish about wow. that. Like, I just, no way, I'm not gonna go out and have people say anything about this. I was mm. scared to show it to them in a way. You know? Like you wouldn't want to have to explain it. No, I wouldn't yeah. want them to have any opportunity to be critical of it or anything. I was really, it was my beloved. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I went with my guitar and I, I made an impression with people with my guitar, but the night I remember I went to an open mic somewhere and I brought that Indian instrument. You, you hear the chatter of it, it was a bar and everything. When I brought it out and strummed it, the whole place stopped and it was just like silence and people are looking, what's he doing? <laughs> and that was the moment I realized that, oh, this is not mine, I, I should share this. And 
and I did, and it, and it quickly helped me so much, I, like I couldn't have imagined, you know, in terms yeah. of getting reaching people. Sure, sure. And yeah, I I realized that I don't need to play Indian music. What I need is to bring the flavor of India. Like I I think I play India more than Indian music. I play those years I was there. I know the rickshaw scene. I know how to speak some Hindi. I know where you can get a good chai, and, and that's what I'm playing. I'm playing mm. my uh, my life in India. And also, uh, I had a few gurus there, and they always, the way they lived and what they spoke to me also in, started to in, inform my lyrics, and, mm. and still do to this day. So it gave me a, um, a reason to go pia, uh, past this thought that uh, in the end, there's nothing to say. Uh, and that was my original uh, thought when I came from India that I haven't written any songs, the words, because there really is nothing to say. Mm. But uh, then I found that, well, actually words might be all that some people can hear when they hear the music. They just hear the words. So I should try to use them and uh, see if I can get that muscle to become strong. Mm. You know, uh, songwriting songwriting yeah and so I decided uh, I'd take a, a leap and uh, be reckless and put my heart on my sleeve and uh, put it all out there and uh, that was probably the best thing I could have done because we talk about uh, music for that women love mm -hmm. and suddenly because I was kind of uh, revealing myself and uh, my inspirations uh, Women picked up on that a lot, and I started to see more women in my crowd than men. The men came because I play nice guitar. The women came because they heard the romantic element and there was the a music. story in it. And yeah. there was a story, yeah. so they could come as a couple and both would would find something. And jackpot, jackpot. <laughs> These things you can't you can't create. You'd have to be very cunning to think of, but. Sometimes we're lucky and they, they, these situations fall in your lap and mm. I, I came to that realization. Yeah, but I also think that part of, you know, well, there's a few things in that. One is, you know, as musicians, when you're being honest about who you are and your influences, you're finding a way to tell that story. Yes. So if you've been to India, you've, you've explored that culture, you've explored that way, but why should it be incumbent on you to be the next Ravi Shankar? Yes, There's really right. no reason for yes, that. Right, right. You know, I've gone through the jazz thing, explored that, but I, I'm not, I mean, you know, going to be, the, hold a torch for the jazz thing. Yes. I mean, that would be really disingenuous of me. Yes, and no, right. I'm really not the guy to do that anyway, <laughs> technically, you know. If it's you not want like someone a lot of stress. Play, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you want someone to play fast bebop on a gig, I am not the guy to call. Please. I know some guys, though, if you need <laughs> I do, too, yeah, but that's not me. But, you know, but then the other side of it is where you come from, the Isle of Man, and yeah. there's, this, there's this thing in the British Isles. There's a definite balladeer, troubadour, songwriting culture yeah. that comes from there. Might be in our DNA. I think it must be. <laughs> I think it must be, you know. Uh, it's like, the for me, it's the where I grew up, how I grew up was, was with a lot of blues music and a lot of rhythm, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, if you couldn't play drum beats, even if it wasn't your instrument, you were looked askance at, you know. You know, the Vishwam Mohan Bhatt told me a few things, and, and they're, they're pretty relevant to what we're speaking about here. Uh, one of the things that he said early on to me when I was just learning, he says, it's all good, he says, but never try to be greater than the Raga. Whoa. And I yeah, took that yeah. home, you know, and I was thinking, 
wow, that's so heavy. I let that sit with me. And I started to see there was a lot more in that expression than I thought at first. He was talking about um, try to come from that place that is not your ego. You know, mm. Try to come from that place which is your intuit, intuition mm -hmm. and, uh, and the heart. You know, Try to come from that place and don't make it all about you mm. because mm. If, the, if you're really good, it's almost as if the music is there and the musician is not. He's mm -hmm. somewhat absent because the music is so present. Yeah. And uh, so I took that one. Another one that he used to say to me was like, um, he said, Western music moves linear, like A to B to C to D, on mm -hmm. and on. And the faster, the better, you know. He says, but um, here in the East, we go to A, then we go to a deeper A. Then we go to a really deep A, and we exhaust that A until we yeah. can't see anything more in it. Then we think about B. <laughs> and I was like, oh, there's another heavy one. And I took that home, and I realized... Don't be in a hurry to get to the next note because the note you're on is already amazing, yeah, you know. Yeah. So there's these little things. Wow. You know, and that's a great observation he makes. I play a lot with a guy named Bobby Previtt, who's a great uh, drummer and composer, yeah. like extraordinaire. You know, I mean, he's. And we would do these gigs that was only improv improvisation. We wouldn't talk about anything we were going to do before we would just hit the stage and just play. That was it. <laughs> scary. Very scary, <laughs> but he's a master. Yeah. And there would be parts in, the, in these songs, because we weren't getting up there and just like doing that kind of like aggressive, like clear all the women out kind of improvisation. <laughs> we were doing, we were doing, the idea was to write songs and write music in, 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 while we're improvising. And uh, we would get to these sections where he would play a very sparse hit or something that, that really slowed the music down and created this unbelievable amount of space. And then he'd do it again. And then he'd do it again. And then what felt like an eternity later of just being completely naked and exposed to the audience. And I would get very uncomfortable really uncomfortable give me the heebie-jeebies you know it would make me crazy uncomfortable to the point where i wanted to talk to him and i said dude man you can't leave me just <laughs> flapping in the wind hanging. like that that's awful <laughs> then you go back and you listen to the tape of that <coughs> if there was a tape and you'd be like actually those were the best moments of the evening but we're so uh in, i guess inculcated in that idea of which is a cool idea in a lot of ways. Is got to keep it moving, got to keep it moving, got to keep it moving, got to yeah. keep it moving. That we get into this zone where we feel like if there's any kind of introspection, um, not like selfish me introspection, but just general human introspection in the music, then we don't have the patience for that. Mm -hmm. You know. But then there comes that point of well, where where is that line that separates? Uh, the selfish from the patient, you know, where does that line happen, you know? You know what, uh, Bishwa told me that uh, in the hierarchy of sounds, he says, the top would be silence, and then comes music, and finally there's words. Wow. And that's, that's great because, you know, what that says is that with music, you can express the unexpressible, and um, that's maybe the attempt that a lot of us are making, you know, to say something, you know, like that woman left me, you know, and, but you don't say it with words, you say it with your horn, you know. Yeah. Um, I just fell in love. Say that yeah, with the yeah. piano, man. It's just like, you know, so um, I love that notion. Yeah, it is a great notion. It's really beautiful. 
That is fan. That's a fantastic. Uh, I know what he means about silence too. You know, and what you're talking about with the gaps there. Well, that's introducing silence into the, the thing too, which I use that in subtle ways in the music too. You know, that that becomes part of the music. It's mm -hmm. it's a mm -hmm. it's an area we shouldn't uh, ignore. You yeah, know, in our busyness. You know, I, and I I have a duo I do with uh, my friend Scott Amendola, great drummer. We've yeah. been doing for a long time. And um, when it works, it's because we use the space as the third person. When it doesn't work, it's because we're worried that we're not creating enough sound. Well, and it, it, it is always that. Yeah. It's never. So the more space we create, the better the music is. Oh. The less we use the silence or the less we use restraint, the worse it gets. You know? Um, at least that's the goal for me. I mean, you listen to those great records by like the Ahmad Jamal trio. Mm -hmm. um, wow, the amount of space in those records yeah. and the restraint that all the players have. Yeah, and just they're thinking of uh, of a of the total kind of sound that they're creating. It's just incredible. Like to be able to achieve that high of a level yeah. of selflessness. Yeah is kind of unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that's really like, wow. Yeah, you know? that's great. So you have to bring that into your music, you know, who you are. And mm. um, if you're an angry person, join a heavy metal band. Yeah. It's, a great, it's a great outlet for that, you know. <laughs> right. It's wonderful. But some of those guys I know that play that music, and they're not angry people, and, and it gets very... <laughs> no, I've very, met some really nice I know, guys. and it gets very hard confuses for them. me. I night have to after be night, because <laughs> night after night, they're expected uh, yeah. to go up there. Or maybe their catharsis has moved them to the next place of feeling like, ah, oh, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> maybe too good to play that. Man, so tell me how you ended up like being born on the Isle of Man, which is a pretty far-flung location culturally, yeah. to ending up in India, which for someone from the Isle of Man is far-flung, to ending up in Japan, yeah. which is far-flung, and now you're you're in BC on uh, Vancouver Island. Is yeah, that? well, yeah. Salt Spring Island, a small oh, okay. island near Vancouver Island. You know, it's it's a long journey, and um, this this uh, journey of life and. My father was from Scotland and my mother's from the Isle of Man and uh, we grew up there. I came over to Canada when I was five. They immigrated with five kids. We lived in Toronto uh, when I was a kid. I became a roadie for bands. It started in the 70s. I worked in a blues club when I was uh, 18 in Toronto, uh, the El Combo, famous... Uh, Whoa, get out of here! Famous rock of blues course, club. Yeah. You know, I mix the sound uh, for all the great players, the blues guys, and a lot get of Get out of here, I bet musicians. you have some stories, man. Well, I saw a lot of great acts, and, and that started to, uh, you know, maybe plant the seed of, of what I wanted to do, having, uh, you know... Then I was a roadie for Rush briefly. Get out of here! Oh, dude. <laughs> mix the stage monitors for them. You did not. Yeah. My son is going to flip... Out. He likes he, Rush. Oh, he loves Rush. They're a great institution here in Canada. And, uh, I never checked them out when I was young because I was listening to the music that you were listening to, and I didn't hear them until like I would hear it out of the corner of my ear, and I'd be like, "Well, that music is really not for me. That's no, just not for me." Then my was. son started listening to them ad infinitum. Yeah, and so then I did as well, and I started hearing stuff in it that I liked. I was like, "You know what? Enough time has passed." And I see where these guys come from, I see what they're going for, and I really appreciate yeah. it now. You know? Yeah, I do too. I think the sentiment never resonated with me of the music, but I, I was in great admiration of their technique, and, and as people, they're 
really great guys. I worked in that roadie scene from, I, well, I left my home at 15 and joined a, a band as a roadie and, and learning to play from the guitar player. And I did that till I was about uh, 19. And then I went back to uh, to Europe. I, Rush was the last band I worked for and they kind of cured me of rock and roll. I was really? like, oh, I can't do this anymore. When That's you do the big giant yeah, stadium gigs and all that my stuff. My head was pounding with the noise and uh, so I moved to, uh, I went from there to Paris and started playing on the street. You know, that's... I did the same On the thing. trains in the morning, oh, the guys going to work. Murder. The trains uh, were Pompidou murder. Up to center outside at the cafes. Uh, the terraces, yeah. Terraces, going to places where nobody wants you. <laughs> they chase you off. You remember Les Deux Magots? You remember that place? Oh, oh it was man. awful. They You're hated talking us a long time. I know. I, I was there with my brother. We came together. Um, he played a kind of a... Uh, wide jazzy guitar and uh -huh. I played the uh, mandolin like a banjo mandolin oh, so you could hear it really good small too. yeah so we could go anywhere and do our thing and um, and then we moved from there down to Switzerland and I, I hung out there for years playing uh, in Zurich and around yeah, all Zurich, over on the Niederdorf yeah on the Niederdorf yeah. well what you'd do on the daytime you'd take a train over to Basel on Saturday we did the same thing <laughs> we did the same thing and we called it the you, Basel Burn Bounce that's right yeah. you do Bern and then you, or you can go down to Luzern or, or Genève wherever yeah and, uh, small place oh man I did that for a, a long time and um and in between, I always used to go to India. You know, I went to India the first time in 79, mm. and um, I loved it. So I went back finally in 86, and I was pretty much there most of the time until 98. Um, I used to go to Japan and uh, busk, and uh, that was a good uh, money earner there in did, Japan. Did you know those guys that from that were the British guys that lived in Switzerland, the Squires? Yeah. You knew them? The John Greed. Uh, yeah. I know their names. And Trevor. Trevor. Oh, see, Trevor's Trevor. a good buddy of mine. Get out yeah. of here. Trevor was one of the first guys that I met when I oh, when yeah. I went to Zurich. He kind of showed me the ropes a oh, little bit. Oh, yeah. Guy. Trevor was around when I showed up. In, <laughs> wow, and he's get been out there of here. Forever. How's he doing? He's doing good. I, he still comes. To, I have a friend in Thailand, and he still comes there every year. Wow. And, uh, and hangs out. Um, one of the, there was two guys. An older guy and a younger guy, and the younger guy was the nephew of the older guy. Oh, okay. The okay. younger guy uh, passed away overdose. Yeah. In, in Japan. Yep, I know about when that because my friend uh, Joe Hasty. I don't know if you knew Joe Hasty. Uh, he probably just overlapped with you. Big Joe, one man band. No, he didn't do one man band. I don't think he's from North Carolina. Mm. He plays. Uh, you know, he started out ostensibly as a bluegrass musician. He, he wasn't in the grass band. holes. Uh, Dutch guys, yeah. Yes, that was, was Dutch guys. That yeah. was Joe. Yeah, that was Joe. I knew yeah. the uh, one guy played guitar who lives in Thailand now. Uh, yeah, and I think, I think Joe played him. bass with them. You know, they did the typical yeah. thing where they get the go to Holland and get the VW van. Yeah, and they drive it around <laughs> until it breaks down, or the Swiss Do a few police gigs. tow it. And Do a few gigs while you're there in exactly. Holland. Get the money to pay for the car. Exactly. I had a car I bought in Holland for like uh, five hundred dollars, and I drove the shit out of that for years and finally uh, the last trip I was with another guy we were driving on the Autobahn by then we didn't have an exhaust so everybody <laughs> went by was pointing at their ears and then with the other hand showing us that we were crazy, crazy. That's awesome. so we waved at them smiled 
I ended up abandoning that, taking the license plates off it in the middle of the night, some little town in Germany, and we all we packed our stuff on our back and, and just walked. Off. Yeah. Oh, that happened many times. You know, there's a story of these two guys, Mick and Lenny. Uh, they were English, the London Londoners, um, hilarious guys, and they were uh, they knew the the squires. They knew those yeah. guys. And um, I remember sitting on the pit, uh, there was this Cafe Rainbow that we used to hang out at, uh, right off the Niederdorf, it was right on a big pitch. And I remember going there and seeing them and they were almost in tears and we were like, well, well what happened, man? And, and Nick was like, oh, they took our bus. They took, they took VW bus and they turned it into a cube of metal. You know, apparently because the Swiss authorities didn't like that. If you had a car that was too old and it got enough parking tickets, they would just take it and turn it into a cube so this so that was the that was the lore i wondered if that actually did happen but that was that oh that God. happened you know well like you know that. i had an interesting story with the police i was playing in the in the square and busking was illegal in the days i was there probably it was illegal there yeah. ostensibly yes. illegal they didn't want to catch you so no. what their whole if thing you was didn't, i think the rule was if you weren't offensive to any of the locals mm -hmm. like if you were too loud or mm -hmm. too whatever uh, they'd leave you alone. Mm -hmm. They came one night uh, to get me. They must have had a complaint. So they came and they got me and said, come on, let's go. We started walking towards the police station. And um, I started talking to them, you know, and they said, well, why don't you get a real career? Why don't you play in clubs? Why don't you go professional? You know, they were kind of nice guys. Yeah, yeah. I said, I don't know. Man. I'm just doing my thing. And uh, so they walked me to a club. They did not. And they said, you go in there, ask for a job, and... That was the end of it. Yeah. I went in there, I watched it till, <laughs> through the window till they left. And I went back up and set up on the street again. <laughs> well, you know, the, the Swiss were really interesting in that. You know, the, their culture, it's very, for, for Americans, for all the other people I was with, it, it was very linear. You know, but they didn't quite understand it. They only saw, like, the real authoritarian kind of thing. But they just... They just like shit to work smoothly, yes. you know. And Fish once you get, once you figure that out, you figure out they also like to have fun. And yeah. you're there so that they can have fun. So as long as you're not messing stuff up too much, yeah, they're totally fine with it, yeah. you know. If you like one guy I knew, this guy Tommy Tortellini, who's absolutely I know, you know Tommy, Tommy Tortellini, get man. Out That's of here. great. He was a great player. Yeah, he had to. I don't know if he had, but he I had think kind he of still got the hair, the I hair, a little fro does. or something yeah. going yeah. on there. But Tommy he would sing great. these Italian folk songs, but, you know, and that was in the day. Oh, sure. Yeah, that was the day with he the mouse dynamic. amps. dynamic. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and a personality. The mouse, like, he had the mouse. Yeah, we all had the mouse amps, mouse. and the maxi mouse at that point. And it was loud. And one night, he just decided it was like midnight. I think he'd had a little too, he got a little too high, maybe a little too drunk. He decided that he had to go up to the square in the Niederdorf and turn his amp up to 10 and start singing punk rock songs as loud as he could. The police came. It made it kind of hard on us for a little bit. But, yes. but you know, as long as you stayed out of their thing. And what we did, we were a very efficient organization, like the people that I worked with. You know, we would play on the street all day, and we would use that as a way to get gigs. Get gigs. And you'd get all those yeah, party that's gigs. Right. And we you played the weddings, most absurd all, yeah. things. Some for the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Yeah. Um, and then some, like, we'd play those gigs in Zoog for these people who were probably arms dealers and other stuff like, this is pretty awful this is a crazy <laughs> scene down here but you know you'd play gigs and I mean I remember we have pictures of of uh, 
we had a hotel room we shared with like five or six people and there was a huge round table and we would go count our money out on that sure. and there's a picture somewhere I don't know where it is but where it's just a pile of money mm. it's like a mo money mountain and all of us sitting there with our, <laughs> our greedy smiles on our faces it always looks know. more when it's in coins too it, you know, oh, now, yeah, now yeah. I get paid with one little measly little piece of paper a check <laughs> man I used to get a bag of cash and I used to spend you know hours counting it or exactly then they open they had these machines in the bank. You just go Swiss. and dump it in. Dump it in. Dump it I in. had my Swiss bank account. I did too. I still have it. Sounds great. <laughs> Ten francs in there. You know, that is so funny. And the other thing about that people don't realize about Switzerland or a lot of Europe, um, until you get like down into Spain and southern Italy where it can get a little more free-flowing, is that you know, you spend all this time in America or, you know, wherever you grow up, especially in the States, like, oh, the other, beware of the other, beware of the other, you know. Mm. So you're worried, oh, man, I don't know the language, I don't know what's going to, you go there, you show up, and then after a little while you learn the language, and pretty soon you realize, like, well, wait a minute, I am the criminal element. <laughs> I am the other. I'm the one that the people are paying the police to watch out for even though of course you had no intention of ever sure. harming anyone all you wanted yeah. to do was play music yeah. but you start to you go to a place like switzerland and you're like whoa and i remember there were times with this one guy did you know toot the musician did you know him the, the magician really, that sounds really familiar too. well he 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 would just you know a lot of these guys you know what do you say they they would didn't have kids where they would just get high too high yeah. and he had been working like all day and he got too high and I guess he fell asleep somewhere and just left all his money in a bag on the pitch on the Niederdorfstrasse. Came back the next day. It was right there. Oh Same place. Someone had moved it into a location where it would not be stepped on. You know what? <laughs> Isn't that something? Yeah. You know, like they're not going to steal your stuff. Nobody wants to steal anything from no. you there. It's yeah. like that in Japan too. I, I know a guy left his one-man band of thing on the street and uh, he did it on a regular basis and would go to a bar and have some drinks and come back and it'd be sitting there. Mm. I uh, know another guy that lost his wallet three times on the trains in Tokyo and got it back every time with money. <laughs> it's almost like a test. Yeah, so, yeah, well, I think this is part of the great learning, you know, like other cultures and, and seeing it from their perspective, not going as a tourist and, and uh, still remaining uh, the person you, the, from the place you came from, but really uh, just diving deep into the, the river and uh, seeing how they live and, and being like them and... Uh, that's a great learning. I, I had to give up, uh, I had to unlearn a lot, I think, in my travels, um, especially in India, and especially with music. Uh, when I met Vishwa, he, he unlearned everything for me that I knew. You mm. know, he told mm. me how to hold the slide bar again and how to tune the instrument properly and how, how to sit, you know. He started, like, uh, right at the beginning, and um, uh, <clears throat> I think that was good. Uh, if I have any uh, gift, maybe it's it's the ability to you know to to give up what I think I know and to, to take something new on. Mm. That has served me well. That's uh, a great gift to have. Yeah, along the way because uh, that the flexibility is something that uh, is always going to be a, a great tool to have. You know, wherever mm. you go, uh, whatever you're you're playing. And um, I, in Japan, I learned some Japanese songs and I sang. Uh, couple of them in Japanese and that turned out to be my biggest money makers you I know. wouldn't doubt it yeah it's affirmation that when you when you come from a very foreign culture and yeah. you uh, do justice to somebody else's cultural right uh, thing even if it if it's an attempt 
you're affirming their culture yeah. and you're affirming in your eyes. So it's that's huge for people. They well, my that. excuse here in Quebec is I don't speak so much French because I don't want to damage your beautiful language. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I damage it plenty. I'm a one-man French wrecking crew. Oh, man. But uh, I'm sure they're uh, they're 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 uh, they feel good that you you make an attempt and uh, that yeah. shows the respect for the culture. Yeah, here they do. I mean, it depends. You know, like in you know how it is. Like if you speak a little French and you're you're in Paris and you speak pretty decent French, they'll always want to speak English to you, even if they can barely speak oh, English. Yes. But when you leave Paris and you go down to even Lyon or you yeah. go down to the south of France, it's just like Italians. It's like if you speak a little bit, they're like the whole family comes around and they want to show you how to do it correctly. Sure. And it's from a place of love rather than a place of, right. of uh, kind of xenophobia. You know? Maybe Paris, um, you hear that the people are burned out on, the locals are burned out on... Um, they're burned out. On tourists and, yeah, and yeah, that whole yeah. life. And you could imagine that that could be so, you know, every yeah. day... How to yeah. know thousands are oh, pouring in totally. with the same questions and the same. I can totally you know, get. It, I, I can know. imagine the fatigue. You hear about the the fatigue of the people, their their behavior being a little sharp as a result yeah. of that. And yeah, I, I totally understand. Yeah, I get it. I get it. When you're at Disneyland, uh, unaffirmed Disneyland. Yeah, you know. Uh, you wear the you wear the metaphoric Mickey Mouse suit everywhere you go. You yeah, know. that's right. But you know, getting back to what you you said about. Dealing with other cultures, I, I you know it it set off of in my mind the synapses just re- remembering how great it was because I was at a gig in New York and my friend Ken Parker um, who makes a fly guitar you know he's a oh, genius yeah, uh, Parker guitar genius uh, engineer yeah, sure. um, you know industrial designer and instrument maker and you know he's the kind of guy that that. Uh, you know, he wanted to make a certain in- instrument a certain way, and there weren't tools for it. So he went back and designed tools and made the tools. You know, it's that kind of thing. But so he, we were playing a gig, like a legit, you know, gig in, in Manhattan and on Lower East Side, and he had brought one of his new guitars down just to let us play. And I mean, I play six string very rarely, but, you know, he got the guitar out in front of the club, and I was like, oh, let's just play it right now, you know? So I started playing. And about 10 or 15 people stopped. I wasn't even performing. I was just playing some stuff. And the more people stopped, and then he started talking to people. And it just brought back this rush of just how powerful it was to play on the street in a lot of ways. Because, number one, people of all stripes from all backgrounds would stop. And then you get into conversations with these people, and I'm the I'm I've always been interested in other people's culture. That's my first thing that I get really excited about. Yeah, you know, so you would be you'd meet people from Africa, you'd meet people from Iran, I met a bunch of people from Iran, but all the circumstances, and they'd get to the point where like, all right, we got to get rid of this guy because he's just annoying us. He's asking us too many <laughs> damn questions. But most people were real interested about that, and I, I just I miss that immediacy of being able to communicate so directly with people it's just like the ultimate icebreaker you know people want to tell you like these iranian guys well we're musicians now but you know before the the uh ayatollah we i was a physicist and and he was a math teacher yeah now we're here or you know a guy from africa well you know my family is their royalty in ghana uh we came here and and then they were deposed and now i'm here and i work in the copy shop down the street 
whatever it is, you're constantly meeting these interesting people and constantly having these experiences that I feel when I go to, to places in America that are more landlocked and people don't have those connections, I just feel like, man, these are fantastic people here. Mm-hmm. I wish there was a way that they could interface with all these other people yeah. like them throughout yeah. the world. It would be great for That's the culture. Right. you know. Yeah. I had a gig, or uh, I was playing on the street once in Lucerne. Uh, I had lived there for a time, and I used to go out uh, in late afternoon and play on the, the Fußgänger zone there, the walking yep. street. And there was a guy once, uh, kind of lurking, over in a, on a, in front of a shop, watching me, but wouldn't come close. He was uh, a black guy, and uh, he was very curious, you know. And I saw him. He, he stayed for a bunch of songs, and then the next day I came out, and he, there he was again watching. So uh, when I was going home that night, I was walking. They have a they had a club there, right in that area. I looked on the on this club, and uh, there was a picture of that guy, and that was his name was Dollar Brand. Get out of here! Oh wow! He, he since changed his name. Abdullah Ibrahim. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he oh, that was the guy, favorites. and I thought, now why would a guy that's working like him in this jazz club be watching me? But you know, I was thinking later, hey, he's probably picking up something that's not familiar to him as a jazz musician, as a, as an African musician. Maybe there's something, a little thing that he's getting from me. And I thought, wow, that's interesting that he would hang out and watch me. Yeah. No, hey, you know what? That's, it's not because you've got the real stuff. You know what I mean? And I think people who have the real stuff notice that. They'll hear it, you know? Yeah, there must have been some little thing that uh, maybe, if you, well, I should have went to see him play. Maybe I'd hear him play one of my tunes. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, you never know. You never know. He's, he's a brilliant composer. Wow, he's fantastic yeah but you know I remember being uh, on the street in Switzerland and you you come across a lot of great musicians that were coming there because that's where if you were smart enough that's where the money was made yeah that's remember a lot of great gypsy musicians and um, and I remember in particular seeing these flamenco guys and they had a guy playing bongos with them bongos yeah Yeah. for God's sake yeah I've seen bongos since the 60s and it was (laughs) one of the I was totally enwrapped I yeah. follow them to, from pitch to pitch because the oh. guy was so good yeah. he was saying so much I was just like this is ridiculous yeah that stuff you works know? well on the street very dynamic oh very yeah yeah, yeah. It draws you in you know um, we always tried to add a little shtick to her to our act to kind of jazz it up either something oh. visual you know or you had uh, to have that you you have to uh, get them interested uh, you know with the visuals too um, you have to be as bigger than life a little bit mm-hmm. I still I still carry that kind of um, show business thing that I got from that uh, with me today like I always have I always dress in a particular way and I approach it like that I, I sometimes I don't go to folk festivals much anymore when I first arrived here they all invited me out to you know but then they quickly realize that I always overdressed for it you know <laughs> I'd be in my suit with my particular hat and everything and everybody else would be in shorts and flip-flops oh wow and I would look at them and they would look at me and I when I looked at them I thought man you look like the crowd they they ain't happy paying to see you yeah. look like them yeah they want to see that they've uh, they've you know paid for something bigger than life so dress it up yeah you know no, that's I, true I, I wish still I had take that, that approach yeah. like uh, that you should uh, you know Rise to the occasion, and mm, uh, mm. it's it's not for you that you need to do it. It's uh, it's for them you need to do it. Yeah, you know? uh, that's 
That's a great way of looking at it. I just always looked at it as like, hey, I'm going to my job and I love my work and you know, I'm going to be honest with these people about who I am. That's right. You know, and um, that's the way I've always always done yeah, it. Like I'm right. not going to pretend to be anything yes. that I'm not, you that's know. That's right. It's important that you come as you are in this in this thing because in the days when you you can't keep up an act, it's going to be real tough. Very tough. You know, you yeah. want to set yourself up with something that feels right and uh, you can live with it. Uh, Absolutely. You know, I mean, I have I have friends who are great musicians in their own right and they have to keep up an act. Yeah. You know, and it's painful yeah. to see that. Well, you evolve as, as a musician too. Yeah. And uh, sometimes the past can be a bit of a weight for you if you've done something great. And, yeah. Uh, you know, fortunately for me, I've never had that great moments yet <laughs> you know the most yeah, yeah. popular moment I've ever had in my brief career here was when I had my guitar stolen earlier this year I had five and a half million people watch uh, uh, read my uh, Facebook posting a hundred thousand people shared it Wow and it was so heavy that's that unbelievable it was in the, it was in the man maybe I should get my guitar stolen. it was in the front <laughs> it was on the front page of the Chicago newspapers Wow and that because the uh, the internet uh, was so internet action was so strong that the mainstream media picked on up on it and they were all calling me like from Fox News from all these Whoa. guys and that put pressure on the cops yeah and then the cops started calling me on a regular basis every day out well we're, we're looking for the guitar Harry and uh, we've got some clues within a few days they'd found it and they went and got it because they was were it? under so much pressure it was in Chicago so it got stolen from an airport? Or? Yeah, I went to I went to the. Uh, and this is the Mohan Vina. Yeah, you're talking about. I went that's down like to ridiculous. the. Ridiculous! It's like stealing a Mack truck that's that's like with sparkles and like yeah. in the shape of a giant teddy bear. Yeah, it's a one of a kind. Blaring North Korean military music. It's like try try, try to sell that on the street. <laughs> the guy, uh, I think, you know, he he didn't know what to think probably when he got it he he walked out of there and there was a video of him walking out of there and he was it turned out to be a career criminal who has since that uh, that time has received five years in jail wow for that wow but uh, he came back about three days later dressed in the same clothes trying to steal more bags and uh, and then they uh, they showed him the video and they say hey look here's you stealing that guitar and he says wow that guy's wearing the same clothes as me <laughs> <laughs> the cunning mind, eh? <laughs> and then so they said uh, they did. He didn't have a penny on him. They gave him a quarter. He made a call to somebody, and they brought it to the station. And uh, then they called me, and I went back to Chicago. And um, wow, I got to the airport. There was a camera crew there, you know, and four cops and bulletproof vests waiting for me. It was man. a big thing, you know. I, I had my. Uh, Five minutes of fame. An there. international but incident. It, actually, that month we sold uh, a lot of music. Downloads. Well, good for you. I mean, that's great. <laughs> and uh, I got a lot of gigs out of it. So man. just never. You know, know what we should do, man. For we should we should do like get our guitars together, and like maybe we could put my guitar down a well, <laughs> and then we can have like a reality show. You know, um, get a few other stolen instruments together. Just have a reality show. Our our, our you know our, our ratings would would skyrocket. You know. <laughs> Yeah, that's what people like. They like the boy down the well. You there know. it is. Oh, that's insane! Wow. But I'm I'm enjoying my uh, my musical journey, and I sort of let it unfold. You know, I I never had um, 
I was never overly driven, you know, with a lot of ambition about my my career. Um, I was content playing on the street, and in fact, in 2000, when I came from uh, from Japan, I uh, uh, I went to the street in Vancouver, and I started playing on the street. And I was thinking I'd go and play in Indian restaurants, you know, playing my yeah, arena. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, but what happened to me was that it, in the day I would play on the street, but at night I would go around to the clubs and see other bands. I started going around and, and seeing guitar players, and I was going, yeah, well, I could do that. And then yeah, I'd see somebody yeah. else, and they'd go, yeah, he's not bad, but it's weird that I feel that way suddenly, because I had no idea about my You didn't own think level of yourself of, in no, that light. I didn't think of myself as being like a, a strong player, um, but I hadn't been in North America, you know, for like uh, 20 years or something, so I had no sense of it either. But I quickly realized that, well, if this guy is doing what he's doing, he's on a stage and getting paid, maybe I could do that too. Yeah, and yeah, you uh, can. I didn't sure. last long on the street. I, um, I, I quickly decided to make a, a recording, and I went into a shop to, to rent a cassette recorder, because that was where my <laughs> head was at, right? And this guy said, no, <clears throat> we don't have those anymore. And in fact, uh, he knew me from uh, my childhood, and uh, we had a suddenly I, we realized we knew each other. He says, "I'm a friend of uh, Randy Backman. Why don't I take you over to his place? He's got a studio, and we'll make a record." And I said, "Really, man?" I said, "That's going to cost a lot." He says, "Well, let's see." So they told me how much it was. So I said, "Okay, I'll take one day." So I went in there and I recorded my album in eleven hours. Yeah, I just laid it down. Well, that album became Blues Album of the Year in Canada. And Killer! It sold fifty thousand. Whoa, that's fantastic! Man. So back I, when you could sell records, yeah. <laughs> so in I, today's metrics, was. that's like there a million was, downloads. That was in two thousand, and uh, there I was. I suddenly uh, got a call from a record label and uh, an agent, and it's been rolling since then. Yeah, right on, man. You know that reminds me of the story of uh, Nick Drake. Apparently, someone said when he went when he made that record, Pink Moon. Yeah, he had been going through a lot of troubles with with um i think bipolar disorder or something that he was having to be medicated or was medicated for and um he had that great record i think five leaves left right that was kind of in it fantastic songwriting very very unique guitar tuning and playing it's coming out of really that english kind of storytelling thing i think a lot yeah. of it but great playing yeah and um, then it didn't. It wasn't a success. And they're like, "Well, why aren't you a success? Every other folk rock person is a success." And so they made him put that record brighter later out. And then he put that out, and they did all of it. He hated it. He didn't like it. And apparently, he came into the into the record company with his guitar. He goes, "Okay, I'm I'm ready to do a solo record. And I'm ready to do the next record again." And they said, "Okay, well, let us book a studio." And he goes, "No, right now. No, right now." And apparently. <laughs> He took him somewhere, did it right now, and then they put a little sweetening on it later with like a piano and some strings and a few other things, but he's like, right now, let's do it. I was like, yeah, man. That sometimes that's the best thing to move, to move right on it. And, yeah. Um, <clears throat> see an opportunity, you got to jump. Totally. And, uh, well, speaking of which, it looks like we got to jump right now. Yeah, right? I was just thinking you might have to... Uh...